are listening to Rootbound, a podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside. Before we begin today's program, I would like to talk to you about spring. Spring is the season of love, flowers, and perhaps a little too much mud. In the dead of winter, what season do you look forward to? It's not autumn, certainly. Spring undeniably has the best equinox and is the only season predicted yearly by a rodent. So this year, remember spring, love, flowers, and a little bit too much mud. And now, Rootbound Radio presents The Rite of Spring, composed by Igor Stravinsky, originally recorded by the Walter Strarum Concerts Orchestra in 1929. Thank you for listening to Rootbound. My name is Steve, and I host the show, and normally on Rootbound, I have a guest on the show. They tell me about a plant that's meaningful to them, and I do the same. But this is not a normal episode. This is the spring episode. It's, in fact, it's the second spring episode we've done. If you want to listen to the first one, go on back a year. <laughs> on the first spring episode, I started it by playing the Spring Concerto by Vivaldi, and this episode, as you can hear, I'm playing The Right of Spring by Igor Stravinsky. And I think these are two very interesting and, as you can tell, entirely different takes on spring. Vivaldi is uh, much more melodic and, and happy and bright and kind of has that uh, that traditional image of we think of spring. But but with The Right of Spring, there's a lot more chaos and, uh, and uh, tumult and competition and dissonance and I think if you look at the way that plants are in the spring you get a little bit of both worlds the bright colors that you know the happy uh post winter uh feeling that you get in spring but also is the moment when there's lots of fierce competition and uh all the plants are struggling to come out of that winter uh dormancy and so I think the rite of spring is also an appropriate classical music piece to listen to when thinking about spring and let's just hear a little bit more of it right now. There's a famous story about the Rite of Spring that the first time it was ever performed in Paris, it caused a riot because people had never heard anything like this before in their lives and it like blew their minds and they couldn't handle it and they rioted, which I think the story is a little bit new, more nuanced than that. I think there's more that was going on there. But still, uh, whenever I think of the Rite of Spring, I use it as a lesson to, to be curious and to learn and to expose yourself to many things so that when something new comes out, you don't cause a riot for no reason just because you're not expecting something. That's my lesson from uh, the Rite of Spring. And I think it applies to this podcast too. I'm learning about plants here and I'm hoping you're learning about plants. It's a way to broaden our horizons so that when we see something new, we're ready for it. And that's what I have to say about the Rite of Spring. And let's go on to our uh, interview segment during this episode. 
and meet the several guests we have to share with you. But first, just a little bit more of the Rite of Spring. everybody, welcome to the second spring episode of Rootbound. This is one of those special episodes where we don't talk about two plants, we talk about a season and plants in general. And if you've listened to one of these season episodes before, you know they're a little different. We don't just have one guest, we have multiple guests. And today, we have two guests who probably do a lot of talking, but there's some other guests in the room. One you can probably hear now, which is uh, Carl and I's daughter, who might add some... Uh, some baby commentary in the background, and, and uh, apologies if she gets a little too loud, we might have to stop down and jump back in, because, you know, she's a baby, um, and she's here in the room. We also have Ollie, the dog, who is being very quiet on the floor here. Um, they're probably not going to say much, but the guests who are going to talk probably more than those two guests are my wife, Carla. Say hello. Hello. And Ashley Holmes. Hello. And audience, you remember Ashley from the very first episode of Rootbound, also co-host of The Watering Hole. And the titular character in the YouTube, uh, in the YouTube channel, Ashley and the Planet. That's correct. Yeah, so check out all those things, which is pretty cool. So yeah, we're going to talk about spring now and plants. And before we get to the guests, uh, the guests in the room didn't hear this, but the audience, you just heard that I opened this episode with The Rite of Spring by Igor Stravinsky. Because the previous episode, I started with uh, the Four Seasons by Vivaldi, the spring segment, which is a very lovely spring song, but... The Rite of Spring is quite brutal and chaotic, and it had me thinking about how spring is kind of this pleasant time, but you can look at it in other ways, and there's sometimes it can be quite, like, brutal and chaotic, and you see that a lot with animals, you know, there's lots of, like, baby animals being born, but there's also often, you know, baby birds you'll find that mm-hmm. are, didn't make it, and, uh, you know, pred- predation starts happening in spring more, and so it can be a brutal time, and so I was trying to think about how that would apply to plants as well. Because plants seem a lot more, like, peaceful. You know, it's hard to, like, imagine, like, the, the like, chaos that happens in the animal world with plants. But it, that that is, uh, you know, that it, it is the case that, that the world of plants can also have that brutality of spring as well as the pleasantness of spring. A couple examples. First is when, when, the, when, it starts to, when the weather starts to turn warm, it's kind of a race to see who can come up from the ground first mm-hmm. because who gets taller first means you get more light and so there is this kind of intense competition um which is pretty interesting and you can see that in my yard right now there's lots of dead nettle everywhere which is uh, invasive species which i've talked about in a couple episodes uh i also like to make tea from it and the bees love it so i have a little bit of a love-hate relationship with the dead nettle but it's one of the ones that comes the very first and it's really mm-hmm. dominated the yard the second thing i want to mention is this topic called and i have to look at my notes to sp- to say it correctly uh is called allelopathy. Ooh. Do you know? Do you either of you know allelopathy? No, I just thought it sounded like lily pad. <laughs> no, <laughs> a, a lily pathy? No, allelopathy. Our daughter is uh, is giving her input. What do you have to say? <laughs> wow! I, think, I yeah, didn't even think of that. Yes, sucking on your fingers is a quite um, <laughs> quite the statement on allelopathy. Allelopathy is the concept of a plant that can release toxic chemicals mm-hmm. to negatively affect other plants. Ooh. 
rude. And there's a number of plants that do this. Um, the, the kind of the more most iconic one, at least in this area, is is the black walnut. Okay. And there's lots of plants that will not grow under black walnut because it releases this chemical into the ground that kills other plants. But it's pretty common, and I was curious about how that happens with spring. <laughs> and uh, I did find an example of the bracken fern, which you might have seen a lot of these ferns when you lived in the Pacific Northwest. Mm -hmm. It's an invasive species. Oh, okay. But it does release a certain compound that is called, that is called, uh, I'm looking at my notes. It is a proanthocyanidin called Sililgiaine A. <laughs> Carla's a chemist. She might be able to pronounce it better than me. Seligan A. Seligan A. Seligan A. And, uh, I guess. and it, is a, it is an allelopathic compound, so it negatively affects other plants. And the interesting thing about the bracken fern, and I think there's other allelopathic plants that are like this, is that it times its release for when it's relevant. And because this is a, like a like a like a global weed mm -hmm. depending on where it's growing it will release those compounds at different times so like in tropical areas it kind of just releases them all the time but in the pacific northwest i find a, a specific example it waits until the the, the thaw starts to happen mm -hmm. and then it starts releasing so the seeds that fall around the fern don't get a chance to to um uh, what's the word to germinate yeah and then and so it's so yes it's the spring competition by poisoning the things around it essentially yeah. man i bet i probably saw a lot of those ferns and i just thought what a pretty fern i didn't <laughs> realize that it was trying to get rid of all the other ones yeah that's crazy yeah another another weird thing i found about this this compound seligan a is apparently it tastes very sweet oh and people have explored it as being like some kind of alternative sweetener to sugar. Because I guess it's not really like, it's not really that toxic particularly to humans. But also I think it's not a really super toxic in the traditional sense. It just mm -hmm. like inhibits the growth. Just like if you mm -hmm. were like, I think to cover anything in a bunch of sugar or something. I don't know. I, it, apparently it's not like we can eat it. And so there's, there's traditional use of ferns in I think Indonesia that have a similar compound that are used uh, like in tea and it kind of makes a sweet tea. Um, so that's pretty interesting. That is crazy. Anyway, that's that's what I have to say about spring. Um, Carla looks confused. I... She doesn't believe you. <laughs> no, I'm just wondering if there have been any studies on whether it inhibits any growth in humans Ooh. as well. Good question. I have no answer to that. Um, Ashley, what do you have to say I... about spring and plants? <laughs> oh gosh. <laughs> Well, I was just telling Steve really briefly. You enter. You asked me to do the 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 spring one, but spring has notoriously been my least favorite season Interesting. until recently. Okay. And I think growing up, so I was listening to to your first spring episode, and and a lot of you on the episode had not really experienced like a full spring. You grew up in warmer climates. Yes. I grew up in upstate New York, so spring is kind of old news to me. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we got spring all the time, and I just remember. At least as a kid, it just meant things were really muddy, and I didn't necessarily like being like when mm. I wanted to play outside. You know, I wanted it to either be warm. I didn't like the in, the in between. Um, so it's, spring was always one of my least favorite seasons. Yeah, the muddy season. Right. It was just muddy, and like I didn't care about plants when I was little. Like I didn't care about things blooming. You know. There's just like compacted snow in places i'm yeah, sure and yeah especially dirty like, snow. we walk to school and it's just yeah dirty mounds of snow so yeah. like it wasn't <laughs> okay, my sure. favorite however the last two springs i've spent in uh washington state in seattle and like they do have spring but like things are pretty green year round so i think i now that i'm back on the east coast and experience like experienced a lot of gray you know a lot of 
dead. Whereas in Washington, things are green pretty year round. You do get, you know, new growth. I'm now excited about like color coming back Mm. and like for things to be blooming again. So I think I definitely missed out on that the last two years. So I'm actually like kind of excited for this spring. Um, That and being in in DC and with the cherry blossoms and everything, I'm like, okay, I guess I can get excited (laughs) about flowers and stuff again. Um, But yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm excited for spring this year. Well, it's 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 uh, it is full on spring now, and we did take our daughter out to the cherry blossoms. Mm-hmm. So she saw her her first cherry blossoms, and it is a really amazing thing. The cherry blossoms. If you haven't been to DC, audience, I know a lot of you audience uh, live in the area, but you know Washington DC has this famous cherry blossoms that surround the tidal basin, mm-hmm. uh, kind of right in the you know down in DC proper that were planted. It was like over a hundred years ago. I think it's pushing one hundred and twenty years Something almost. Something like that. Uh, wait, Carla has something to say. Um, I think it was 1912 when they were originally gifted by the Japanese, um, like mayor of Tokyo, I think, um, the, the original cherry blossoms. Very interesting. So yeah, that's like a hundred and hundred and 11 years. Is that the math? Right. I think. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So there, some of them look quite old and and they've been propagating some, there's some younger ones Mm -hmm. and stuff like that, but cherry blossoms all blossom at the same time which is mm. a very amazing thing to see if you've never seen cherry blossoms uh, try to find some they they grow in a lot of places yeah. they're kind of a, something that's cultivated for this specific effect of them blooming all over yeah. the place yes i think you were going to talk about cherry blossoms uh well yes actually um so that was the one topic i wanted to cover um as ashley was mentioning like after the gray deadness of winter um, after, I mean, it's, it's nice because it gets cozy in winter and you're like, oh, yay, hot chocolate and all of that. But then after a couple of months of that, <laughs> oh, she's laughing. yeah, our, our little daughter's laughing. Um, after a couple of months of like gray and snow or rain and cold, you're, you're pretty much starved for color. Um, so having something like as spectacular as a cherry blossoms marking in the beginning of spring is so cool. Um, and, but um, I feel like everyone here in D.C. Um, and in other places has been really um, probably just bored of, of maybe Cherry Blossom's talk. So I wanted to cover a different type of blossom. Oh. Um, so in in Mexico City, um, there uh, also at the beginning of the 20th century, Uh, There was some talk of getting cherry blossoms um, to be planted throughout the city, kind of in the same vein of like showing friendship between um, like Japan and another country. So here in D.C. would be Japan and the U.S. And in Mexico City, it was like showing the friendship between Japan and and, and Mexico. But the the, uh, botanical expert um in mexico city um who who was sent over from japan was like they're not going to grow here like i'm sorry but the cherry blossoms are not going to grow here (laughs) so he had to figure out what tree would grow well in mexico city's climate and he brought over a tree from brazil uh called the jacaranda which is uh got the purple the purple blossoms so they have were planted all over Mexico City, but primarily in the beginning in Chapultepec um, Castle and Chapultepec Park. Mm. Um, so it's like the 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 uh, imperial castle built by the by the um, invading Habsburgs um, in Mexico City once upon a time. So it's like a very a very classical uh, Mexico City um, 
architecture, um, that castle, and then it's like a huge forest, kind of like Central Park mm-hmm. in New York. Maybe it's a little bit bigger. Um, so the surrounding forest is is there, um, and it's covered in jacaranda trees in the spring, and they all kind of blossom around the same time, similar to the cherry blossoms here in D.C. or in Tokyo. But instead of um, pink, they're like bright, kind of like periwinkle blue or violet colored, and it's pretty exciting. I'm just realizing I don't think I've ever been to Mexico City in the spring. Have we been there? We've only been in the summer and in winter around Christmas time. So you have never seen the entire city covered in these purple blossoms that you can actually see from the air sometimes. Like if you're flying into Mexico City, you can probably see like um, splotches of, of purple once you're flying like sufficiently low. You can see it from the air. That's so cool. That is super cool. That reminds me the time I have seen the Jacarandas when we were in Spain, which I imagine there was a similar... I don't know the details of this, but they're not from Spain, so I imagine there was a similar plan to bring the Jacaranda to Spain. And I remember we were there. What what month were we there? We were there in May, so like Mm. late spring. And I remember the petals were like littering the ground, and I have some really fun pictures of these these petals and and. uh, they're, 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 the petals are bigger than a cherry blossom, yes. so they have this different look when they litter the ground. They're really mm. cool. And they also look a little bit more alien-like. They're a little bit longer um, and just kind of look a little bit more like alien-like or Dr. Seuss-like. Um, but, yeah, they're, they're, they're fun. Very good. Uh, yeah, that, that's really interesting. I, I wonder, you mentioned that they could grow in this area, I think, to me earlier. Yeah, so um, so the jacarandas could potentially grow in the D.C. area simply because they can withstand um, colder temperatures a little bit better. Um, I think I looked at this up in Celsius, so like minus 7 Celsius, whatever that is in Fahrenheit. Um, <laughs> so minus 7 Celsius, uh, which is pretty cold for this area. We don't get to that, um, that temperature here, really. Um, and then up to, like I guess, like 20, 30 degrees Celsius. Um, as well, so like 80, 90 Fahrenheit, something like that. I, I wonder I wonder if there are any jacaranda trees. I'll have to do some research and see if there's any in this area. That'd be interesting to know. But yeah, they're really cool yeah. trees. Mm-hmm. I don't think I've actually ever seen one. So now I yeah, should have yeah, yeah, been yeah, Googling yeah, right go- away. Yeah. What was I doing? Totally Google. Well, you Google the jacaranda. Yeah. Um, I, I will talk about something I learned about spring, which is, um, which is similar to what I talked about last episode about like how – plants know when spring is over mm-hmm. which is really interesting and i learned about this thing that is called uh that is called um look it up the growing degree day or the growing degree hour and it's this idea and and this is this is what's super interesting because it's a it's a human invented model that can help you know when like a tree is going to bloom for example even mm-hmm. though What's actually happening in the tree is not this simple. But the idea is you have a baseline temperature, okay, of, of where of, of it's like the coldest temperature where the plant is basically dormant. And then you start counting the temperature every time the temperature goes above that. So, so the idea is like you take for a day, you take the average temperature for that day, subtract it from your base temperature, and let's say you have, let, let's say it only got a few degrees, like five degrees up. You take that five degrees and you add it to a tally. And the idea is, is once there's been, an, once that tally counts up to enough, uh, you get enough degrees above that um, that baseline mm-hmm. is when the tree's gonna bloom. Oh. 
So it's almost like you could imagine it like the plant has some kind of like ticker in it that it's like counting the, the degrees above that temperature. Now it's not that we're definitely not that simple. There's a lot more going on, but and essentially it has to do with the the fact that every time the temperature gets above that temperature that the plant can actually do more work to prepare for blooming mm -hmm. but it has been apparently a pretty stable um system for predicting when trees are going to bloom or mm -hmm. other things are going to happen um it's a it's a phenological um construct Phen phenology is this study of, of of the natural world for timing and how to like mm. understand the natural world and when things happen in the natural world and so there's, there's other factors in this but this is one of the primary factors when they when they predict the peak bloom of the cherry blossoms mm. here in dc one of the things they're doing is trying to count those temperature differences over the baseline and then chart and predict out right so mm -hmm. because once there's enough Degrees over that baseline, enough growing degree hours or growing degree days, depending on how you calculate, depending on how you calculate it, that's when the cherry blossoms are going to bloom. So, yep. it's a, and it's a pretty apparently pretty rock solid. There's a little bit of wavering, yeah. but a pretty solid indicator of when it's going to go. Is so that's pretty cool. That's really cool. Yeah. Stop real quick. Sorry. Do you see my dog? <laughs> Ollie has his head Ollie. underneath the uh, the like the like playpen <laughs> thing, and he looks very funny right now. Yeah. Let's take a picture of him. Um, <laughs> What a funny dog. My goodness. Oh, my goodness. Um, Feels very safe. <laughs> did you see a, a hakaranda? I did. They're so cool. Yeah. So I'm sorry. So much cooler than cherry blossoms. <laughs> <laughs> like, no hate towards cherry blossoms. Sure. But, like, weird purple alien trees are definitely more my, my speed, I think. So I'll have to make some next spring uh, Find trip to Mexico. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> oh, and that, that park is awesome, too. That's I've never been there in the spring, but it's a really awesome, like, yeah. giant yeah, park. Well, I mean, that, that park is... Is, you know, I think it might even be bigger than Central Park. It's like, it's huge. And it's like surrounding this, uh, like I said, this castle built in like the, you know, 19th century, something like, I, f I forget exactly when it was built, but yeah. Um, and it's, it's gigantic, gigantic castle, gigantic park surrounding it. And so that's when those, those Hakanda trees were originally planted. And now, mm -hmm. now they've been planted all over the city. But yeah, like all of this purple, like in the springtime, um, and also throughout the city, um, like in like the classic old neighborhoods, mm -hmm. um, it's oh, it's amazing to see. That's so cool. Yeah, I think you were going to talk about a tree as well. Oh yeah. So the tree that I always think of, unfortunately, I feel like again with spring is when I was going to school in Buffalo, New York. Um, we they had a certain tree planted all around like our quad that you always had to walk through, you know, to get to any of your classes. And it is, um, unfortunately, a beautiful tree, but a very, very stinky tree. And when you mentioned this, I knew immediately what it was. Um, so it is. Close <laughs> listeners to the podcast will know what this is already as well. Um, so it's the calorie pear tree. Is that? Um, but yeah, so you would know it was springtime because you'd see these beautiful flowers, but it would smell like fish, mm -hmm. which is just not what you want when you're like walking to your 7 a.m. class possibly hungover because it's college um <laughs> so yeah again i i'm starting to to heal my relationship with spring but i don't think that this helped every for four years in college every time they're again beautiful but they smell so bad well the well the the calorie pear or in this case probably the bradford pear or a bradford mm. pear um hybrid with something else yeah actually ties into two of the concept we talked about already one as far as that competition mm -hmm. um in spring and, and the whoever plant whatever plant gets there first kind of has an advantage and the bradford pear is like probably the first to blossom mm -hmm. right before anything else I, I always remember there was also snow on the ground usually yeah. i feel like still oh. when i mean it was also buffalo so there's always yeah. snow on the ground sure. but yeah 
they would yeah and then the the other thing about them is you know they they are an invasive tree mm-hmm. and we talked about this in the episode about the Bradford pear with Dr. Vikram Baliga the plant professor who has a has a very strong negative uh, feelings about the Bradford pear and lots of people do it is just taken over um and uh yeah it, it it's just it's just a kind of a bad tree that you know it's got pretty flowers really right. pretty flowers but there's just so many other pretty flowers yeah, out there yeah like the hakaranda yeah um, it's most it smells so bad. Yeah. The calorie pear smell, or the Radford pear smells so bad. Yeah. Yeah. It's not good. Not a good choice. No. Yeah. No one, no one thought that through. <laughs> and then the other thing that brings up is, is, is that, uh, uh, that, uh, growing degree days or hours, the, the Bradford pear must have a very short, yeah. must be a very short number of degrees above its baseline <laughs> it before it blossoms because it, it does it, uh, very, yeah. um, quickly. Just to call back to a couple other episodes, it was brought into the United States by this guy named Meyer. Uh, he was a fruit explorer. We talked about that in just the last episode. And he's also the guy who brought the Meyer lemon to the mm. United States. And oh. he brought a lot of other stuff. But then, then, yeah, the the history of the Bradford Pear, listen to the Bradford Pear episode. We go into it pretty in depth. It's a, it's a weird story of like bringing plants from other places and deciding it's a good tree and then realizing, oh no, this it's- is not a good tree. <laughs> I think that happens so many times throughout just the history of the natural world and human interactions. Although, I mean, the tree, poor tree, it's not like it's a bad tree. It's just Mm. it's not a good tree for this climate. It shouldn't be here. Yeah, yeah. And then also just the way that it was like selectively bred for certain characteristics that are good on paper, but ended up not being so good. It's more of a story of like... Hubris. Hum, hubris and we i mean humans do that so much we're like let's do this thing and this is a great idea and then like oh no this is not a good thing right yeah, yeah. all the time um what was i gonna say about this tree about it being stinky oh. <laughs> i lost my train of thought it does remind me a little bit of the of the starlings which i think you've mentioned on on oh, your podcast yeah. before how they were brought in yeah because what was the story with the starlings oh yeah so so um Back in uh, probably like the 1800s, somebody decided that they wanted to populate all of Central Park in New York City with uh, all of the birds mentioned in Shakespeare. Um, <laughs> and so European starlings are in fact European, uh, but they were brought over along with, I don't I think house sparrows might also, mm. they're definitely mm-hmm. invasive, but I don't know if they were one of the ones that was specifically brought over. Um, but yeah, so they brought over all these birds that then became incredibly invasive uh, and you can see them all over the place. But with like anything that's invasive, especially when it's humans who like caused the problem, it's always such like a I don't know. I always feel so bad because it's not their fault. They're just adapting to you yeah. know what they have to adapt to. Um, when you know if they were in their normal, you know habitat, normal ecosystem, they would be under control. But we brought them somewhere new, and they're just like, okay, well I can thrive here. That's yeah, not my fault. You. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just thriving. Um, but yeah, I find European starlings to be actually incredibly beautiful. So they're like cool. iridescent and shiny and cool. And didn't you, did you see that one video of it mimicking um, human sounds perfectly? No. And like, oh my, I'll have to send it to you. That is amazing. amazing. Yeah, apparently starlings are really good mimics. It's just that they have their own like internal culture. And so they don't end up mimicking other sounds as much as even a mockingbird, but they're way mm-hmm. better than a mockingbird. They actually can talk. <gasps> And there's this really funny video, which maybe I'll play a little clip at the end of this, even though it's not plant-related, but we have Ashley here who hosts The Watering Hole, which is about I animals. have to bring in the animals. That's fine. <laughs> Where it's making these sounds, and it's it's repeating the human, and then it makes just a spot-on R2-D2 impression. Oh. It is amazing. That's fantastic. Yeah. So it's like, they're really good mimics, mm-hmm. um, but but they just don't mimic very often because they're often just around their, each to. other. 
I think the reference in Shakespeare references the fact that they're mimics, actually. It I might be. I should yeah. check into that. Yeah. That would make sense. Yeah. I didn't realize that part. That's cool. I'll, I'll, I'll maybe try to find that as well. Um, well, that was, that was a tangent about <laughs> birds. Um, I always love a tangent about birds, though. Yeah. I mean, they're very related to spring, you know? Mm-hmm. So it, it fits in. I was just thinking, though, the guy who decided to bring the birds into Central Park, did he not realize birds flew? I, the amount of times people bring animals somewhere and like don't like the whole like I don't want to bring in cane toads but mm. like they brought in cane toads to to get a in Australia to get rid of an insect and then the insect ended up when it grew older when it developed it flew and cane toads don't so it couldn't anyway that's a whole nother story that hopefully if you turn into the watering hole we're gonna cover cane toads hopefully soon but go ahead Steve. I would say two kind of related things because this is kind of tying back into the plants things one is is, you know, the um, the Bradford Pear is a, is a similar story, which we covered in that episode, but I'll just reiterate it here in case you haven't heard it before. And I think I understand it a little bit better now after mm. I've digested it, is that the Bradford Pear was cultivated to be this specific tree with these specific qualities. But because it was a hybrid, often hybrids are are, uh, are sterile. So the mm. idea is, this is a great mm-hmm. tree. You can plant this in your yard, and it's not going to spread. But that is not what has happened. Clearly, it's spread a lot. But what really happened... Is that yes? The Bradford pear, the the cultivar, of the Bradford pear is is sterile. If you have two Bradford pears next to each other, they will not pollinate each other. But what happened is when the Bradford pear became popular, people started making other calorie pear hybrids, mm. slightly different cultivars. Mm-hmm. And if you have two of those near each other, they will cross pollinate. And now we have this like world where we have like all these different crosses yeah. of the calorie and Bradford pear because the Bradford pear became popular. And so then it, it, it got out of control. And yeah, um, birds eat the little pears. The seeds spread all over the place. Yeah. And, you know, if you look out, you see any kind of like along the road at the right time of spring and any white you see is all the Bradford pear. Yeah. There's a bunch of trees outside my apartment building that they bloomed a couple of weeks ago and then they died because it got too cold again. Um, but I have to, I haven't smelled them because they look. I don't know what kind of trees they are, but there's definitely a chance that they're Bradford Pears. Probably. If they were white and it was a little while ago, they probably were. Yeah. They're Uh, also right next to, like, where the trash is, so maybe that was strategic. (laughs) (laughs) We'll just put the stinky trees right here and no one will care. They'll just look beautiful. And then, and then, and this is not necessarily an exactly spring thing. I feel like we've gotten a little bit off of spring, but that's okay. <laughs> we'll wrap up here in a second. But the one thing I learned about allelopathy, this idea oh, of mm-hmm. like uh, plants putting uh, toxins into the soil related to invasives, is that the idea is that when a plant is in its native habitat, all of the other plants have kind of gotten used to the allelopathic chemicals of the plants around it. Mm-hmm. But if you bring a plant from somewhere else to a new place, those other plants, the native plants, are not used to the compounds it puts into the ground, mm. and that gives it a big advantage. It's similar to, like, the lack of competition with animal species. It's yeah. very similar. And that's not the only factor, but it is a factor, and there's some studies about specific plants that, in their native environment, all the plants around them are like, yeah, I'm used to this guy's weird c- compounds he yeah. puts out in the ground. But if you bring them here or, or anywhere they're not from, those those native plants have trouble competing. Yeah. They're not quite adapted to that. They're like, whoa, this is new, whoa, and I have not developed any kind of defense against yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, definitely a problem. <laughs> yeah. Do we have anything else to say about spring, Carla? Just that I love it. And then I'm starting to. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a great way to end this episode. Thank you for listening. In addition to my infant daughter and Ollie the dog, my guests on this episode of Rootbound were my wife, Carla Arias, and Ashley Holmes. You can find Ashley's podcast, The Watering Hole, wherever you get your podcasts, and also check out 
her YouTube channel, which is called Ashley and the Planet. If you're a fan of Rootbound and you want to help support the show, go to rootboundpodcast.com support to find all the different ways you can support the show, including supporting the show on Patreon. That would be pretty cool. Rootbound is hosted by the Igor Stravinsky of podcasting, Steve Ellington. Music by Christian Kugaskota. Fake ads by David Lani. Rootbound is a podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside, but if you can go outside, enjoy a nice walk in the spring, even if it is just a little bit too muddy. This episode of Rootbound was brought to you without interruption by spring, the preferred season of large rodents.